Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For thousands of years, the study of rhetoric was a fundamental part of a man's education. Though it ceased to be commonly taught in the 19th century, my guest today argues that it's an art well worth reviving in the modern day. His name is Jay Heinrichs, and he's an expert in language and persuasion and the author of Thank You for Arguing, What Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson Can Teach Us About the Art of Persuasion. Jay and I begin our conversation with a description of what rhetoric is, why after being taught around the world for centuries, it fell out of favor as a component of education, and why it's still essential for everyone, especially leaders, to learn. We then unpack the difference between fighting and arguing, and how it's the latter that's a lost art, especially in our digital age. From there, we discuss each of Aristotle's three tools of rhetoric, ethos, pathos, and logos, including a dive into how the way your audience sees your character is so important, and how you can even do an ethos analysis of your resume. We then delve into Cicero's five canons of rhetoric, and Jay shares a smart technique for memorizing a presentation and thus delivering it more persuasively, and we enter a conversation with a fun game you can play to sharpen your rhetorical skills. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash rhetoric. All right, Jay Heinrichs, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. So you are the author of a book called Thank You for your Arguing. It's one of your books you've written. But you're basically this, you've become this expert on rhetoric. And we're going to talk about what rhetoric is here. But how did you become an expert on rhetoric? Was it something you, you picked up in college or did you discover this later on in life? Definitely later on in life. I was about 30, I guess. And I was working at a college, Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, and I honestly got pretty bored in my job. I was wandering through the library in ridiculously long lunch hours. Then one day while in the Dartmouth Library, I was in this corner of the open stacks where there were cobwebs literally on the books and half the fluorescent bulbs had burned out. And a book for some reason caught my eye. It was about eye level. And I took it out and opened it up. And it had been signed by John Quincy Adams, you know, president of the United States. Before he became president, while he was still a U.S. senator, he gave some lectures at Harvard, and this book was a collection of his lectures. And in it, he introduced me to rhetoric because that's what his lectures were about. And he was telling these teenage students, all boys, to catch from the relics of ancient oratory these unresisted powers that could control humanity. And I thought, I got to get me some of those powers. And for the next you know, dozen years, I did everything Adams told me to do. I read into rhetoric and interviewed rhetoricians around the world. And uh, eventually, I drove my wife so crazy, she begged me to write this book. So I did. Well, so let's talk, what is rhetoric? And then let's talk about the history of rhetoric. Because as you said, you found this book written by John Quincy Adams. It was a big part of the college curriculum for a lot of Americans in the 18th and 19th century. But so talk about what is rhetoric, the definition, and then the history of rhetoric in the West. Rhetoric essentially is the art of persuasion. It's the study of how words influence people. And so we're talking about spoken rhetoric, written rhetoric, you know, art can be rhetorical, anything that moves people. And so originally, back in the day, let's say 3,000 years ago, it was invented as we study it today by these uh, Greek itinerant teachers who just went from island to island in Greece, teaching people 
how to speak well and persuade others. They called themselves sophists, which means the wise ones. They were into really good branding back then, apparently. And so along comes the philosopher Aristotle, and apparently as his last book, he wrote the textbook on rhetoric, The Art of Rhetoric, which I spent years studying. Uh, And so Aristotle has been used for centuries ever since. Now, it was taught to boys and young men exclusively. So you had to be a member of an elite to study it. So originally you would learn grammar, you know, how to speak proper Greek and later proper Latin. And then you would learn logic. And the last thing you would learn when you were old enough was rhetoric, which was considered to be the height of what was called the liberal arts. Liberal meaning you didn't have to work for anybody. You were a leader. So that was taught more or less in any place where people had elections throughout history. And by the way, this isn't just Greece and Rome. There's good evidence that the ancient Jews uh, studied rhetoric in schools. Chinese did too. There's some evidence that rhetoric was taught in African civilizations and even in North American ancient civilizations. So this is anywhere anyone wants to persuade anybody else, rhetoric was apparently taught. Up until sort of the late 1700s, when German universities came along and they were very research-based, didn't like the classics very much, very much into science. And they had this notion that the Americans picked up, which is that leaders really don't count in history and that once you've set up really good institutions, then they should run themselves and, you know, people shouldn't have to bother having to lead. And so that pretty much held sway right up until like the 1980s, 1990s in this country. I wrote the book thinking, I don't know that that's true, that that we don't need decent leaders. We have our institutions, but if we have bad leaders heading them, those institutions don't seem to go very well. That's why I wrote the book. Now, I think this is the art of leadership. So really, anybody who wants to be a leader should study it. But also... Anybody who doesn't want to be manipulated ought to study it well as well, because rhetoric, essentially, being the art of persuasion, it's a dark art. It can also be a tremendous art of manipulation. So studying it gives sort of inoculates you against that. All right. So the art of rhetoric, something that's been taught for thousands of years around the world, and you argue is so important for leadership, but then it stopped being formally taught around the early 1800s. Now, one place where rhetoric continued to be studied all along were the historically black colleges. So after the Civil War, these colleges sprung up to teach black people. And among those colleges were Morehouse University and and the Crozer Theological Seminary, and among others. The reason I mentioned them was that one guy studied rhetoric at both those places, and that was Martin Luther King, which I think, you know, it's one example of the value of learning rhetoric. Well, at the beginning of the book, you talk about there's a difference between arguing and like rhetoric is the art of arguing well, but also fighting. What do you think most people do today? And like, what, what's the difference between arguing and fighting? You know, it's funny, Brett. I, when I first told people I was writing a book on how to argue, <laughs> their first, they all thought I was having a really late midlife crisis. You know, because, who wants to learn about argument? And, you know, one of the first things I had to do, and this is why I did it at the beginning of the book, was to talk about the distinction. So in an argument, 
the job your job is to win over somebody to make them feel as if they somehow won at the end won something while you convince them of what you want them to believe or do fighting on the other hand is about simply winning either scoring points or dominating another person so an argument what you hope for at the end is a consensus you know where both of you agree on something it doesn't always happen so sometimes it's better just to you know your goal might be to walk away with a good relationship but generally if you want to persuade somebody one you want them to feel glad that they were persuaded fighting on the other hand is just a way to prove that you've dominated someone else so fighting usually ends up with at least one person feeling lousy and you know argument makes you feel good and in the end if it goes well fighting the purpose of it is to make the other people person feel terrible so it seems like a lot of the internet discussion on twitter or facebook it's a lot of fighting and not too much arguing yeah way too much and you know what a lot of what happens in social media in general is that you're either preaching to your own choir you know you have your own groups who are just looking to confirm their own opinion or you want to you know score points to show that you're wittier than the other person or i don't know just meaner <laughs> so you know i think a lot of what comes across as arguing in social media twitter in particular really is more venting you know people trying to just you know feel better for themselves by making other people feel terrible and I think people, the reason why people default to fighting is because, again, as you said, we stopped teaching rhetoric in the schools. Like, you know, for a lot of, you know, for early part of American history, you started learning how to be persuasive in, not in, not only in college, but like, at, you know, seven years old, but we don't get that at, that anymore. And so we just resort to just venting or emoting or just trolling and making people feel bad. Yeah, that's well said. I, I think that one of the main purposes of a rhetorical education in the past was for people to learn what rhetoric was for, <laughs> you know, that it's not just purely an art of manipulation, although it's that too. It's also th this notion that the only way for people to make decisions in common is to persuade each other. The only alternative to that is violence or, you know, people saying violent things, you know, threatening each other. I mean, the one way we've allowed civilization to really flourish throughout the world is this idea that people can get together and make decisions in common. And the only way to do that is through rhetoric. Our not teaching it is, you know, literally dangerous. Well, so let's talk about, let's say someone buys in this idea. Okay, I want to be persuasive. I want to have an argument where the goal is to persuade another person and you feel everyone kind of walks away feeling better about it. What do you do if you want to do that, but the person you're engaging with just wants to fight? Are you, <laughs> is that even possible to have a, a, a persuasive rhetorical argument with that person? Well, one of the most important things about rhetoric is to really know who your audience actually is. So it's a little tough to talk about this during COVID, but eventually when all of us can get together again, one of the most important things to do is to look at who your audience really is. You know, is it the person you're talking to or is it the people around you? So I I speak uh, several times a week in video chats with high school classes that study uh, my book. And one of the first things I tell them is be the grown up in the room. You're going to win so many points that way. And a lot of people are going to be convinced all except the person who just wants to fight. So you may have some jerk who's venting or saying stupid things or having a 
Dumb opinion. And if you treat the other person kind of respectfully, don't lose your temper, use some humor if that's possible, and don't lose your cool in general, then you're going to be admired by the people who are listening in. And so who cares about the jerk? And what's so what's interesting about these the, the your book, the tips and the insights you're getting about rhetoric, it's thousands of years old. Like what Aristotle saw over 2000 years ago still works today. Like it's still relevant. Uh, it works for social media. It works for a blog post. It works for a video conference call. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. This Because rhetoric was developed over centuries and centuries and, and existed for a long time before Aristotle even wrote about it, these are people who had a, a profound understanding of human nature. And, you know, human nature really hasn't changed. Social media, our media in general have changed, yeah, but people, you know, not so much. We evolved over 30,000 years before people even thought about, you know, studying rhetoric. So our brains are what they are. And I think we have to sort of go with that, that, and you know, to understand that these people really, really did know what they're talking about. Now, when I was studying rhetoric, I branched out into, there's lots of really good modern rhetoric, which is more about people's sense of shared identity, which the Greeks weren't quite so much into. But also, I studied neuroscience, linguistics, sociology, and there's a lot of really good research, uh, behavioral economics that confirm a lot of what the ancient Greeks and Romans were talking about with rhetoric. So you mentioned you've got to think about your audience when you're thinking about rhetoric, and you make the case, and I think Aristotle makes the case too, that there are three main goals a speaker can possibly have for his audience. What are those three main goals? Well, they're sort of in ascending order of difficulty. So the easiest thing to do is to try to change someone's mood. So one of the things to look at is, is the person you're trying to persuade or the audience in general, are they in the mood to be persuaded in the first place? And if they're not, can you change that mood? And so I go into behavioral economics on this, which has this concept called cognitive ease, which which means if, if a person is relaxed, feeling in control, you know, ideally smiling, then they're more likely to be persuadable. So that's mood is one thing. That's the easiest thing to change in somebody. Harder is to change someone's mind, you know, on a particular issue. You know, even if it's a family kind of thing. Do, you know, do we go to the mountains or the beach two, two summers from now when we all have vaccination? The, the third and hardest thing is to actually get someone to act or to stop acting. So you see all these concerts that are, that are held to get young people to vote, you know, rock the vote, that kind of thing. But time after time, people will show up for the t-shirts or the concerts or whatever online now, and then not vote. So, you know, you could change their mind about wanting to vote or to vote for a particular person, but getting them actually to show up at the polls, that's hardest of all. And so that takes a different set of tools and they're a lot harder to do. Now, often what happens is you start with a mood, you change the person's mind, and then you, you know, try to get them to do something or stop doing something. I would add a fourth goal, which is relationship. A lot of times we make the mistake, especially when someone's confronting us and we get that fight or flight instinct to think we need to fight back, you know, simply to fight. And, you know, or on the other hand, you may be upset or have a really strong opinion. More often than not, maybe you ought to think about whether to walk away 
having someone like you or, you know, to get along with somebody. Think first about whether you can get along with the other person. And that may be your best goal of all. All right. So three possible goals for an audience. You're going to either change their mood, change their mind, get them to take action, or just simply get along with them, which could help with all three of those other goals as well. And then Aristotle said that in any argument, there are three main possible issues that could be going on. And I think this is one of the most useful things I got out of the book was this idea of the three types of issues, because oftentimes what I've discovered in the conversations or arguments or debates I've gotten with people is that we we are both, we are all of us are arguing different issues, but we don't know it. Yeah, it's so true. So what he did, what, what Aristotle did, and I think this is really brilliant, is he organized those issues around tenses, past, present, and future tense. And so the the rhetoric of the past tense, when we when we use the past tense, what happened in the past, he called forensic rhetoric because it has to do with forensics about, you know, crime and punishment, who done it and how should we punish them. Then the present tense, he called demonstrative rhetoric. It's often called sermonic rhetoric because it's the language of sermons. It has to do with what's good and what's bad and who's good and who's bad. Some people call it tribal rhetoric. And then Aristotle's favorite had to do with the future. He called it deliberative rhetoric because it has to do with deliberating about choices, about what to do, how to solve problems together. And so deliberative rhetoric, he actually called the the rhetoric of politics. Now, in politics today, I'm not sure we're doing so well from Aristotle's point of view. You know, we talk in the past tense about what criminal acts our opponent has, you know, committed in the past, or we talk in the present tense about bad people and who should be, you know, prosecuted or locked up. The future tense is the one where you actually can get something done and make a choice. So can I tell you just a quick story? It's in my book, I've been, which you've read, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I could tell it for the audience. when I, uh, Some years ago when my son, George, was 15 years old, I was getting ready in the morning in the bathroom. It's midwinter. It was cold. And I, I found that the tube of toothpaste had, toothpaste had been squeezed dry. So I shouted through the door. George, who used up all the toothpaste? I figured he was the culprit because, you know, he's a teenage son. And I hear this sarcastic voice on the other side saying, that's not the point, is it, Dad? The point is, how are we going to keep this from happening again? Now, I was kind of pleased about that, actually, because for years I had told him the best way to get out of trouble is to switch the tense to the future. You know, who used up all the toothpaste? How are we going to solve this problem? Now, I was so pleased that he'd actually been listening to me over all those years. I decided to let him win. So I said, all right, George, you win. Now will you please get me toothpaste? So to this day, he says he won the argument because I said so. On the other hand, I got a teenager to run an errand willingly, and he went down to our freezing basement, and I got a tube of toothpaste. Now, what he did was he switched to solving a problem from being blamed. What I did was let him win. So that's the ultimate consensus. Now, what if I had used the present tense, what Aristotle called demonstrative rhetoric? Then I would have said something like, George, a good son wouldn't use up all the toothpaste. And you can imagine how fast I would have gotten into a toothpaste. You know, he would have been very defensive. And that's often the problem when we use the wrong topic, speak in the wrong tense, 
when we have a, a confrontation or an argument with somebody. Well, that, that, I think that's useful because a lot of even just like interpersonal arguments you have with a spouse, like your kids, you we tend to get hung up on the the blame, the past tense or the present tense, and you're always wondering like why can't we just move forward. And I mean, to me, that the idea that Aristotle would say, well, move things to the future and you might make start making some headway. Right. Pivot. Pivot to how to solve the problem and what the result will be in the long run. Yeah. And I think it's good insight. So if you, f- you find yourself in an argument that's not going anywhere, like pay attention to how people are speaking. Are they using the past tense and the present tense? Because if they are, that's probably why you guys are stuck in blaming and talking about values and you might not make any headway there. So, I mean, like a pivot, like what do you do? I mean, what, so you give an example of what a pivot would look like there, but what do you do when someone doesn't want to pivot? Like say you, you want to make the pivot, like, well, what can we do about it? And then the person says, well, no, no, I'm not done. I want to, I want to assign blame. We want to figure out what's wrong, who did what. Uh, is, can you make any progress with that? Or do you have to use some other rhetorical tools to keep moving forward? Yeah, there's a this great study that was done over years by this guy named John Gottman at the University of Wisconsin. He ran something that became known as the Love Lab because they brought in all these married couples and they videotaped how they argued with one another. And what was really interesting, they did this, as I say, over years, and then these poor grad students had to view these tapes and sort of log them of how these people talked. And then they tracked the couples, by the way, over time. So the couples who ended up getting divorced and the couples that stayed together actually argued the same amount of time. They disagreed and spoke about it the same amount of time and with the same frequency. The difference was the couples that got divorced used their arguments as a way to prove the other person was a jerk. They spoke in terms of demonstrative rhetoric. So this just proves you're not a good husband or you're not a good wife because you know you left the toilet seat up or whatever. Whereas the other couples would say, you know, this is a problem with the toilet seat up. What are we going to do about it? And you know, they could both get heated, but at the same time, one went for a solution and the other wanted to prove they were superior to the other person. So what do you do about that? That kind of thing. How do you turn it so that the relationship survives? Maybe that's your first goal. So you can say, you know, if you're the one who's being blamed in the past tense and or being called a name of, you know, to show how what an idiot you are or, you know, how lame you are, the best thing to do is to say, yeah, you know, you can call me this, but that's not going to solve our problem here. I mean, basically, all you have to do is say, that's not going to solve our problem. Let's talk about how we're going to do that. Now, often what happens, though, is that you have to go back to what your goal is and say to yourself, you know, is, is this person so angry she won't listen to me? You know, can, should I be changing the mood a little bit? And to do that, you have to really acknowledge that the other person feels bad. And, and so a, what men are bad at is apologies, and that may have to come before anything else. Well, it's not I me. Mean, again, it sounds like you, you might have to concede. Like, okay, let's just say I'm a jerk. And that's hard for people to do because it's like, well, I'm not a jerk. I don't think I'm a jerk. But Aristotle would say, well, sometimes you got to make a concession to achieve that higher goal of moving forward and, and causing a change. Well, a lot has to do with whether you actually are at fault, <laughs> right? So, you know, suppose you did do something thoughtless. One of the things to do is not just say you're sorry. It, when you say it, by the way, look as sincere as you can. But what you should also do is to say, you know what? 
I want to do right. You know, I'm the kind of person who really believes in doing the right thing, whatever that is. And then say, let's talk about how this isn't going to happen in the future. And that's, you know, obviously if something happened that's really serious and upsetting. Now, suppose though you're innocent, then you can say, you know, look, call me whatever name you want. But let's talk about how you and I are going to get along together and sustain our relationship. Use the kinds of terms that might appeal to this other person and work on the relationship alone. There may not be a problem to solve. If there's a problem to solve, switch to the future. If not, think about the relationship. Gotcha. So try to switch to the future. Give people a choice. People like thinking about choice. Choice makes people feel good, feels like they have a sense of autonomy, and that's where problems can actually be solved. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So another thing Aristotle said that I think is still relevant today, still works, is that there are basically three primary, we can call them tools of rhetoric. There's ethos, pathos, and logos. So can you walk us through each one sort of big picture and how Aristotle saw that they'd fit together? Yeah, really important. So ethos is your character as your audience sees it. It's what they think of you. So whether they like or trust you. Pathos has to do with mood, what mood the audience is in and what tools you can use to change that and to use it to your advantage. And then there's logos, which has to do, it's it's often translated as logic, but it's a little bit more than that. Now, each one of these tools all has to do with the audience itself. So logos, logic really isn't about facts necessarily. Uh, you know, research shows consistently that if you throw facts at people, they're likely to just get more entrenched in their own opinion. So low log, pure logic and reciting facts don't work all that well. Instead, look at the beliefs and expectations of the audience, not what the facts are, but what does your audience believe and and think about how to use that. Pathos has to do, as I say, with the audience's mood. Ethos has to do with, with not who you are so much as what your audience thinks you are, and you might be able to change that as well. So now, Aristotle invented logic. And yet he said, and he and he just sounded so sad when he wrote this, <laughs> that logic is not the most persuasive of those three tools. He said that ethos is. Whether someone likes and trusts you is much more important in determining whether they'll follow you. So if you are someone your audience thinks is one of the tribe, maybe a slightly improved version of it, like a leader then they're much more likely to be persuaded by you than, than any kind of logic you're going to use on them. Well, let's talk about ethos in particular in detail here. So Aristotle thought in order to have ethos, your character, you had to develop rhetorical virtue. And again, Aristotle wrote a whole, whole book about virtue ethics, the Nicomachean ethics. And it sounds like he took that idea and integrated it into his idea of rhetoric. But it sounds like he has an idea of like, it's like almost like rhetorical virtue. So for Aristotle, what what does rhetorical virtue look like, and how do you develop it? Yeah, you know, of there are three basic. He devised the Greeks were crazy about rules of three, so there are, there are three tools of ethos, uh, and probably the most powerful of them all is is virtue. Now it, it's very different from what he described in the Nicomachean Ethics. It, it, it Rhetorical ethos, as you hinted, really has more to do with the audience's values. 
and whether the audience thinks you uphold those values. So he used this sentence that took me years to try to understand, and and I think I'm kind of getting it. He said that virtue is a matter of character. Okay, it's, you know, your expressed character, what the audience thinks of you, dealing with choice. So it's how your character influences the choices you make, lying in a mean. And I think what he meant by that is the choices your audience sees you make, not just for the moment, but throughout your life, should fall between something that's completely reckless and something that's, you know, too cautious. And at the same time should also fall like right smack in the middle of the values of your audience, right there in the dead center. Now, that's the most important kind of um, you know, expression of character. Now, the other two tools are worth mentioning, which is whether the audience thinks you know what you're doing. Like, can you, if you're come up with a solution, a choice, does the audience believe that you know what you're talking about, can, that you can solve this problem? And then the th- third is whether the audience thinks that you have their best interest at heart. So are you disinterested, which means that you d- you don't represent any special interests, including your own. I break this down into labels of cause, craft, and caring. So cause is virtue, whether you uphold these values of your audience. Craft has to do with whether you know your stuff. And caring is whether you have the audience's interest in heart, even to the point of maybe sacrificing yourself for the greater good. So that those are the tools of character that Aristotle defined. Well, it sounds like okay. Let's let's make let's make this do some practical application here. If you are in your business or an office, you can develop these things these three things over time, right? You can show your competence to your coworkers, to your boss. You can show that you're disinterested. That you put the company before your own interests. You can show you know to the, your your coworkers and your boss that you have the virtue or the values of the organization. And then, so whenever you do, you need to be persuasive. You halt, you have that going for you. But again, this is like a long term thing you develop, kind of get that street cred. What do you do if, like, you're just plopped in front of some, an audience and they know hardly anything about you, and yet you need to develop that ethos on the fly? Did Aristotle have any insights on that? Yeah, and the Romans did too. The ancient Romans did as well. They developed it more, really. So one of the things the Romans came up with is this idea of decorum. We think of decorum as like manners, but it really comes from the Latin word meaning fitness, as in fitting in, as in like your ability to fit into your environment, including an office. And so the clothing you wear is an expression of your character. Or, or what people see your character as being. I was a manager for some years and was constantly being visited. And I'm, by the way, I, I managed um, creatives, so who dress in all kinds of ways. And I was often visited by human resources to tell me that some employer or another was dressing inappropriately. Well, for the team the person was working with, that person may have been entirely appropriate. It just didn't look good to the corporate types. So decorum changes according to who your audience is. And that's probably the easiest thing. Now, the tone you use, the words you use, in some cases, you know, you can use four-letter words in a particular office setting. In other places, that's probably not such a good idea. So one of the most important things to do before you enter into any new situation, even if it's just to give a talk in front of an audience, 
or you know harder take a new job is to understand who your audience is do a little bit of homework before you do that that's hugely important so decorum is sort of like instant ethos well it sounds like we see politicians do this you know when they're when we had state fairs about this time you know they would go to iowa or something and be like oh my grandpa's from iowa you know, and they would try to make that connection with, and they were basically doing ethos on the fly uh, with their audience. Yeah. In fact, you know, one of the problems that Hillary Clinton had when she was running in the last presidential election was that I don't know whether she did this consciously or not. I bet she didn't. But when she was speaking in front of a Southern audience, she would change her accent. And the problem with that is if it was just the audience, that might have been fine. But, you know, she's a presidential candidate, so her audience was like the nation who would hear her change her accent and think she was being kind of phony doing that. So you have to be careful. One of the things that um, older people, one of the sins they commit is to try to fit in too much with like a younger audience. Or, or one, if they're speaking to people of a different ethnicity or race, trying to imitate the, that speech can be a huge problem. It's much better to sort of use a decorum that represents the other people's values, not so much just their behavior. And that's hard to do. That takes some practice. You know who was good at it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. What I've read from him, you know, so he's this, you know, from New York. He was basically an aristocrat, and he, and he talked like a, you know, those sort of New York aristocratic kind of squealy voice. But somehow he was able to get cowboys and like lumberjacks and hunters, like they loved the guy. And he didn't, you know, he he didn't try to pander so much, but they just they they saw his behavior, sort of his sort of out sort of his attitude, and they're like, hey, he's one of us, even though you know he might really wasn't one of them. Oh, that you could not. I'm going to use that example. You could not have come up with a better example of decorum because, you know, for one thing, half those ranchers, uh, Teddy could have kicked their butt. You know, he was he was famous for leading people on these hikes where he would just exhaust everybody. Uh, and he could stay up night after night. He could sleep on bare ground. And, you know, he, he could be with some pretty tough characters and they would appreciate him for that. He shared their values. So he didn't, he could wear his, you know, pince-nez eyeglasses and, and speak funny, but that didn't matter to the people because he shared their values. That was more important than his behavior. So ethos, character, you want, you want to connect with the audience. And that's something you might have, you can do on the fly by with looking at the Romans, looking at your, you know, how you're presenting yourself with your clothing, the way you talk, mannerism, things like that. But then it seems like, I mean, the big takeaway from I got from that is like really to develop that ethos. It's a, it's the most effective ethos is like that long, that long game ethos where you, you do all these things that Aristotle talks about so that you can be persuasive when you need to be persuasive. Yeah. It's easier, easier for us modern Americans than it was back to, for the ancient Greeks and Romans, because they believed your ethos came from your ancestors. (laughs) So if you had lame ancestors, you were screwed. (laughs) But, you know, for us, it, it really is almost a lifetime thing or at least a career long thing. I mean, if you look at modern politics, it's really interesting that, you know, any presidential candidate right now, you're looking at their whole history being laid out in front of everybody, and that's their ethos. In an office, you know, the average person stays in a job, what, two years? 
that's your time for developing your ethos. Now, what? by the way, another way to register your ethos is through a, a resume, which these days is more and more automated, of course, because you've got these scanning machines reading it and interpreting it. So you have to have certain keywords. That being said, sooner or later, somebody might actually read your resume. And I encourage people to do kind of a, an ethos analysis. Are you showing you really know how to do the job that you're the, you know, ideally situated in terms of skill set? Do you have a particular cause? Are you passionate about something that's related to the job? And then thirdly, are you willing to do what it takes? Like you're not someone who's good, the fir- whose first question is going to be what's the salary and what are the benefits and how long is vacation? So again, that's, you know, cause, caring, and craft. If you can if you can make sure your resume reflects that, that's your ethos on paper. And I was going to say, you also got to think about how you present yourself online. Because, you know, as you said, it used to be like you didn't have, you know, you don't have to worry about what you did when you were a teenager. Now you do because people, when you're 20, 30, if you posted something on Facebook or Instagram when you were a kid that was stupid, that might come back and haunt your ethos. Oh boy, is that true? And we see it all the time. You know, one of the things that I I tell, especially young people who are on social media all the time, think of your audience. It's bigger than you know, and it also lasts forever. So you have to think, you're, you're thinking about two or three people when you post that hilarious picture of you at a party. But now think, this could be seen by tens of thousands, millions potentially, people. And it could be seen by millions of people 30 years from now. You know, think in terms of your audience expanding into eternity and then think about whether it's a good idea to post that picture. One of the people, and we're 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 um prime for this. We evolved in very small groups of humans. I mean, the largest groups of humans generally, these bands that existed for the first 30,000 years after humans had really fully developed and were speaking, you know, sophisticated languages, were our, the biggest bands we were with was 30 people. And to this day, most people really see their entire group as no more than 30 people. And the problem is social media doesn't work that way. So you're thinking, you know, you're posting for 30 people. You're not. Your your audience is much larger and much more accidental. All right. So we talked about ethos. It's your character, and that can be something that a tool used to persuade people. Let's talk about pathos or emotion. What did Aristotle, how can you can you use pathos to persuade an audience? Well, you know, one of the things that I go with in terms of pathos, because honestly, Aristotle was kind of a stiff, at least he he reads that way. And so he wasn't as good at pathos as the later rhetoricians and then later neuroscientists. And so I tend to look at modern research to see how emotion really works. And the tool I keep going back to, I mentioned earlier, which is cognitive ease. I'm interested in making people persuadable like putting them in the mood so that they're willing to be persuaded. And it's amazing how many salespeople do this instinctively in making you comfortable. I think it helps to be an extrovert. But for those of us who are not, we have to sort of learn those tools. And there are some of them sound really silly. One being, if you want to convince someone, don't sit higher than they do. Sit lower, if anything, or at least at their own level. Don't speak louder than they do. Don't interrupt them. When they say something, pause 
before you answer because it sounds like you're taking their words very seriously. If you can get them to smile, that's really important. So this really great researcher, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote what's now a best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, defined two sort of systems in the brain. The Homer Simpson system one is where you are easily persuadable. You're not thinking that hard. Your brain is kind of on autopilot. You're relaxed and feeling in control. System two is the thinker. That's the system you were in when you took a math test back in the day, when you're sort of frowning, your face is screwed up, and you're thinking really hard. Now, we've evolved to use as little energy in our brains as possible because it's amazing how much when we're thinking hard, how much glycogen we use up. That's why you can be literally tired after doing a really difficult project that involves a lot of thinking. What you want is that Homer Simpson state in your audience. How do you get that? Well, you make them feel relaxed and in control, ideally smiling, not with their face screwed up. When you see these expressions, by the way, you know you're kind of in trouble and you need to start thinking about that mood again. So there are other kinds of moods, a very important one being anger. And one way to deal with anger is pretty much deal with cognitive ease again. Like make sure, speak calmly, you know, keep yourself in control, acknowledge the other person's emotion. You know, all the stuff that psychologists tell you to do actually turns out to be pretty true when it comes to pathos. So ultimately, though, your goal is a relationship and persuading them somehow. So putting them in a mood to like you and be persuaded by them, that's what mood is all about. That's pathos. And I think the thing with pathos, I think some people feel squidgy about it because it's dealing with emotions and there's all these tactics that we can you know, use to manipulate emotions. So how, how can you use pathos without seeming like you're either you know, emotionally manipulative or like a demagogue, right? Like you're, you're calling it, you're using anger, you're using um, the sense of belonging, patriotism, the, you know, othering to, to persuade people to action and manipulate them. Well, the best rhetoric disguises itself. This is true. You know, if, if, so, if somebody thinks they're being manipulated, they're going to go right into that system to, you know, math taking state. And so you, you want to avoid that, obviously. So you want to sound sincere. That's the most important thing here in terms of expressing any kind of mood. Now, a very effective mood to get somebody to stop doing something is fear. Now, the problem with using fear, which is, you know, to talk about what the future is going to look like if you make this decision or continue on this path, is that it actually tends to freeze people up. So if you want to change someone's mind, the last thing you do is put them in a fearful state because they won't make up their mind about anything. They'll just run away or they'll fight, you know, fight or flight. Now, in general, the best way to conduct a deliberative argument about what to what choices to make for the future is to try to bring the mood down, like turn down the volume. And you can do that through your own voice control, through you know nodding your head and acknowledging what the other person is saying by appearing to be non-confrontational. I call this a tool called agreeability, which is the ability to look like you're not actually arguing when you really are. And one way to do that is to nod with the other person and then just gradually kind of reframe what they're talking about you know, agree sort of, and then change the terms of the debate a little bit. You take the mood out, uh, and that may be your best tool. 
All right, so that's interesting. So take, taking mood out is a way to use pathos to actually be more persuasive. So let's talk about the last one, logos, which is translated to logic. But you make this point that for Aristotle and the Romans, rhetorical logic is different from what we typically think of as logic as, you know, facts or like if if this, then, you know, B, it's not analytical logic. So what what's the difference between rhetorical logic and what we typically think of as logic? Well, we can talk about the really logical part of, of Logos that as Aristotle defined it. He came up with this tool called the enthymeme. Some people who study logic, formal logic, learn the syllogism that has the three lines that drive everybody crazy. He, he came up with two lines. And basically, it comes down to this. It, it comes down to your claim, what you want the audience to believe, and then the proof. So we should go to the lake because it's nicer there. That's not a great argument, but it's a perfect syllogism. You know, we should go to the lake. That's the opinion I want you to have because, and then you give evidence, like what's your reason? And so the enthymeme is like this one-two punch of logic. And it's something always to think about because, you know, a lot of people sort of leave out the second part you know, we should go to the lake. And then you sound really whiny and you don't actually give a reason. A great way to structure your argument is to think in terms of what's my claim and what's my proof? And is the proof connected to the claim? A great BS detector, by the way, is to use that same technique. You know, is there a cl- is somebody making a claim here? Is they Do they want me to believe something? And does the proof lead to the claim? Does it prove the claim? And so that's the enthymeme. Now, Another thing that's important, though, about Aristotle's version of rhetorical logic is that it's not so much about facts. I mentioned this before, but about what the audience believes. So we should go to the lake because you can say because, you know, the lake is 20 percent cheaper than going to the mountain. Well, that only works if the other person believes that that's a very important criterion for choosing a vacation, you may want to come up with another proof based on what they really want. Like, you know, you love, you love water sports. You can't do that in the mountain. Let's, let's go to the lake instead or to the beach or whatever. So logos has to do with your proof and your claim with your proof having to do with what the audience believes or what it expects will happen. I mean, and, and also you you talk about how when, when people think about logic, they often, they want to go to fallacies, like logical fallacies and like, you know, point out, like, hey, this right here, this is a straw man argument or whatever. And you argue in, in rhetoric, you're not, you, that's, you really don't want to, sometimes you use fallacies to be persuasive with logos. Yeah. In rhetoric, if it works, it that's good rhetoric. <laughs> so, and on the other hand, you know, rule number one in rhetoric is don't be a jerk. Like your ethos should not get out of control. And one way to be a jerk is to point out other people's fallacies. Like, like that's just fighting. That's not arguing. Now you can use some fallacies work absolutely great on audiences who are not very well trained in logic at all. And so one of the things about rhetoric is the ethics are really kind of up to you. But like rhetoric will work for evil as well as it will work for good. And this is why, so this idea of logos, rhetorical logic, this is why Socrates wasn't a fan of sophists because he took part in dialectic where his his goal with the discussion with somebody was like, we're going to find out with logic 
like what is true. And people who are dealing with rhetoric, they're, they're not they're not so much concerned about. They are, I mean, they are concerned about truth, but like their main goal is persuasion. Yeah, well, you know, the irony of Plato, who you know essentially was Socrates' ghostwriter and maybe inventor for all we know, is is that you know he he wrote a couple of dialogues against rhetoric using every rhetorical trick in the book. <laughs> so, I mean, he was officially against rhetoric, but he was happy to use it. Yeah, he was fighting fire with fire. So yeah, these those are like Aristotle and the Romans' big idea of like, so the you know, think about your audience, their goals, uh, the use of tenses and to figure out what the issue of an argument is and these like pathos, ethos, logos. If you think about those things, that can really help you start talking and making arguments. But then also, something that's really useful from classical rhetoric that's still useful today, it came from a Roman, it was Cicero, and his, he had this idea of the five canons of rhetoric. What What is that and how can that help people be more persuasive? Well, you know, it's really good if you're making a presentation or shooting a video or something like that. And how much you use it is really, it, it, it appeals to some people and not so much to others. So he came up with these canons, invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery. Thank goodness I could think of all that. <laughs> it, invention has to do with it, it's interesting invention in the latin for invention is inventio which is where we get the term obviously but it doesn't just mean making stuff up it also in, inventio also means discovery so one of the things you do before you start any kind of presentation or speech or whatever is to not just come up with your thoughts, but also do your homework. So inventio has to do with discovering the best means of persuasion. That's Aristotle's term, but Cicero quoted him. So arrangement then has to do with how your thoughts are going to be arranged, what order you put it in. And Cicero came up with a kind of nice outline that works for any kind of speech. We can get to that in a minute if you want, but we can move on to the other canons. Invention, arrangement, style has to do with whether you're using terms that are suitable to the audience. That's where your decorum fits in. But also has to do with how vivid you are, your expressions are, whether you're, you're getting your audience to pay attention through the, either the, the beauty or the strength you know, of your language. Memory is really interesting. That's you know, the fourth canon. It has to do with your ability to deliver a speech without looking at your notes. And the ancients were big about memorizing things. It's one of the things that kids were taught. One of the things they did was, I, some people have heard of the memory palace, which is where you invent this kind of building in your head, and you fill it with things that remind you of what you need to know. Well, the ancient Romans in particular, starting at like age 12, would create these memory palaces that were more like shopping malls. I think they were like all at one level. But they would have these rooms that they would fill with symbols they would remember. And because these were adolescent boys who were learning this, a lot of those symbols would be pornographic, so they definitely remember them. So instead of memorizing a speech, they would think of a route to take through their memory palace picking up these expressions, quotations, you know, tropes, whatever would work. And then what would happen in the middle of a debate, they wouldn't be thrown off course. They would simply reroute their path through this memory palace. And so memory for them was really like a lifelong development. Now, one of the ways I talk about memory, sorry, I'm stuck on this, but I just can't help it because it's so much fun. 
I tell people if they're doing a presentation on, you know, go ahead and use PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever, whether you're showing slides or not, create the slides, put notes on them, and then print out the slides with the no- with your notes of what you're going to say. Then arrange them the way you want. That's arrangement, you know, slide by slide. So print out each one of these things. It may be as, as like separate pages if you're willing to use the paper. Then print it out again, only this time without your notes after you've read it a million times and see if this, the, the pictures themselves can trigger what you say. And and just go through that a bunch of times. And what you're doing is you're enforcing different parts of your brain to remember what you want to say. And then, you know, if if you can, see if you can go and deliver this talk without the slides or the notes. And people will love it because it's such a rare commodity these days. Last of all is delivery or in Latin, actio, which means action as well as acting. And that is how well you can deliver this talk. And that's why I dwelt so long on memory. Because memory has a lot to do with it. I hear young people all the time giving talks, you know, in video or whatever. When when they're reading something, the kids who get the straight A's will read a mile a minute. They associate really good speech with how fast they can go. And, you know, for a geezer like me, I can't understand a word of it. And it also is just not very authentic sounding when they do it. So one of the ways to deliver to a modern audience, if you're especially if you're using something like a teleprompter is, you know, slow down and sound sincere at the same time. That's delivery. So invention, arrangement, style, memory, and delivery are the five canons. I think it's great. I mean, it's, again, thousands of years old. It still works if you have to give a TED Talk. This is going to work for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I can't stress this enough. People don't learn enough how to speak sounding authentic, you know, in a video or, you know, in, I don't know, podcast you know, how to sound like you're, you're being yourself while at the same time you may have notes in front of you. And that takes practice. It just, just doesn't just, I think we have this idea of authenticity that it just, you, you'll rise to the occasion. It'll just, whatever naturally comes out of you will be, that's what you need to do. But no, actually the good people who are good at rhetoric, good at speaking, like they, they practice over and over again to hone in on how they present themselves. Oh, that's so true. I and mean, this stuff is really hard. I try to get better at it every year. So your book, I mean, what I love about your book, it's so comprehensive. We talked about sort of the big picture. Uh, I'm hoping people have a big picture idea of what you know is involved with rhetoric. But in your book, you go into like details of little tools you can use to even be more persuasive. Uh, and one of the more useful, I mean, not everything was useful, but one of the things I thought was really useful at the end of the book, you provide sort of like games that people can use on a daily basis to, to fine tune the rhetorical ability. Is there one or two that you think are that are, it's a lot of fun, but also really useful for someone who wants to you know, start improving the rhetoric game today? I'll, I'll tell you one that is hugely popular, or was back when I could speak in front of live audiences. <laughs> I would call someone with the audience, and you could do this at home. It's really easy. It's called the dice game. And, and I have, I mean, you can make this up yourself, or you could simply go to my website, thank you for arguing, and you'll find it there. What you do is there are five types of audiences that could be uh, single people like you know a priest or a nun could be one a uh, a firefighter could be another a college professor could be another and so on and then the other side is it, the stuff you want to sell them so which would be a ball of twine say or 
a baby goat. <laughs> or, you know, you could make stuff up. So in the one column is particular kinds of people, and the other column is the stuff you want to sell them. So roll two dice, and the first die is the audience, and the second die is what you want to sell them, you know, whatever their product is. People give the most unexpected kinds of presentations with this. I will call up people from the audience, and generally it's people who are goaded by their friends who want to embarrass them. They get up on stage and they give the most amazing persuasion, and it's absolutely hilarious. Like, you know, a resentful teenager is, I think, one that's listed in ArguLab. And sometimes you'll get somebody coming up and trying to sell a baby goat to a resentful teenager <laughs> and using the most amazing argument you can imagine. It's, you know, it's super fun, but it also really helps people understand what argument and persuasion in particular is all about. All right. So you mentioned your website. Thank you for your arguing. Anywhere else people can go to learn more about your work and the book? Yeah. The the most useful website, I have really too many. I'm bad at this. But the, the one I put the most effort into because I originally developed it for students is argulab.com. Argue as in argue, lab, all one word, dot com. And that's where you'll find the exercises and stuff like that. Otherwise, I'm hashtag Jay Heinrichs at all the fine social media places. Fantastic. Well, Jay Heinrichs, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, this is so good. You asked the best questions. My guest today was Jay Heinrichs. He's the author of the book, Thank You for Arguing. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work in the book at his website, argulab.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash rhetoric, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>